I'm back here in Sensible Medicine headquarters. I'm joined by Dr. John Mandrola. He'll need no introduction to you. We've been doing this many weeks now. John, it's great to see you. Good to see you, Benai. So it's just the two of us this time. I see our compatriots have abandoned us. That's okay. We'll be the last man standing. John, I hear you're back from travel, and uh, you sent me a little picture along the way. Your flight was diverted. I don't know what happened for a minute. I was saying a few prayers for that flight when I saw that airplane loop-de-loop. You ended up in Chicago. You got to your city late. You got to your hotel late. You woke up early. Travel is tough on the body, isn't it, John? Uh, You know, um, I was just... I was just thinking, I'm so honored to get asked to go give lectures. It's really cool, right? It's also cool. Good to, answer. It's also cool to give my message of, you know, conservative cardiology and critical appraisal to young people, you know, because young fellows are, they're busy learning how to do cardiology and they're, mm-hmm. so it's just, so it's good. But on the other hand, and then the other thing is, you know, during the pandemic, we had Zoom. So you could do a Zoom lecture. Right. And then you could go on a bike ride and it was all good. And but then, you know, there's just it's hard to replace being there and right. and 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 being there. But just getting there, getting there is hard. And anybody who thinks that uh, travel is fun and 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 like, you know, it's 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 hard. It's hard. You know, I know I've been there. So when I joined the faculty in 2015, you know, I was on the heels of having written a national or dare I say international bestseller called Ending Medical Reversal. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. It uh, had a little bit of a niche audience. But despite the niche audience, it led me to get a lot of invitations to speak, and I think Adam as well. And um, I was new on faculty, and somebody had given me the advice that if somebody asks you to go give a talk, you say yes. So I think one year I must have clocked in, you know, 250K miles or something like that, giving all these ridiculous talks. And I was a broken person at the end of that year. So what's my advice? I think you're absolutely right. There's a tension, right? So being with people in person, there's nothing quite like it. And you can definitely go someplace. And it may not even be your lecture that inspires somebody. It might be the dinner the night before, the conversation you have in the cab, or or the conversation you have when they drive you there or something like that, or meeting the fellow who gives you a tour of the hospital. Something like that might be the, the key moment. But it does take a toll. And so what I tell people now, the advice I give, how do you choose? The advice I give is, you imagine it's tomorrow, how do you feel about going? And if it's tomorrow and you feel like, this is awesome, I really want to do it, I'm happy to go tomorrow, always say yes. If it's tomorrow and you feel sick to your stomach, oh my God, three flights, 10 hours in travel, you know, I'm gonna be gone for four days, then the answer is probably no. And if anything, you're probably inflating the career value of going. So that's my advice these days. So I do a lot less talks, at least traveling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can't disagree with that. I don't know. I will say, I will say, I did have a good experience the the last trip to to Lehigh Valley, and I, I thank the folks for inviting me. My my good experience was that it's never happened to me before, but I was in row thirty three, and there were only thirty three rows. So that was my first time in the last row of a plane, and so mm. that was that was that was pretty humbling. The sweet sweet. Inability to recline and the sweet, sweet scent of the restroom. Yes, I know that last row well. You're practically in the restroom, in the restroom. And actually, the aisle seat in the last row is the worst seat because everyone is bumping your arm in and out of the restroom. Yeah, yeah. This was a window seat, and I like window seats because I I like to watch. Um, I don't know why, but I do. Well, you couldn't lean back, I bet. 
You no, probably... no, it doesn't lean back. But of course, I'm working on a computer on the next project, so that's that's okay. Yeah. Let's talk about exploitation for a second. I'm going to write this piece in the next few days. I was thinking about it, and you know, the thought hit me that let me define exploitation in medicine at least, and we'll see if it applies. Anytime you do something where the majority of your labor, the benefits of that is taken by someone else. Okay, if let's define that for hypothetically as exploitation. By that metric, I think a lot of medicine is exploitative. So for instance, to get into medical school, they tell you, you gotta go work in someone's lab. Well, that person gets your physical labor, often for free or very low price, you know, cheaper than the market rate, and you're getting the credential to put on your CV, but if you're really honest, it actually doesn't make you a better doctor in any way, shape, or form. It's really, you know, pro forma. Um, the next thing I was thinking about is people who write journal articles, and I've written a few hundred. That's a lot of free intellectual property I've handed over to Elsevier and Wiley. I saw someone complain today that this person was the editor of uh, some rag journal and that they tried to resign, but the journal like wouldn't let them resign. And, you know, I would even say working as a journal editor for a journal that's outside of the top five you're giving your labor and they're giving you maybe a couple thousand dollars or in the case of writing articles, they give you nothing. And, and yet you're generating billions of dollars for them and lots of clicks and lots of interest and a lot of content. And I say that because I think the alternative is Substack, which we can talk about. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, where you actually do get the benefits of your labor. Let's talk about, do you think this is a fair definition of exploitation? Yeah, totally. Uh, you didn't even mention being a peer reviewer. What about that? You know, you spend, and if you're trying to do it right, so you have this moral compass, like you want to really do a good job and you, and you don't want to blow it off and then you do it. Um, and it's totally exploitative. Like I'll be sitting here in my computer in my room doing something and my, and Stacy will come in and like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing a review. I'm, you know, being a peer reviewer. And she's like, why? <laughs> and, and, you know, cause I don't even have an academic title. I'm just a regular doctor. So I, I guess that's, yes, I, I agree with you, but I would also ask you, you know, you made the comment about it doesn't do anything to make you a good doctor, but I worry that, I worry that some of the stuff that is being done in training now is not about being a good doctor. And it's almost like being a good doctor is is like not even one of the primary outcomes. And, and I, as a person who, you know, that's what I do. I'm a regular doctor. And I wonder uh, about that. I mean, why don't we just train people to be doctors? I don't know what happened to being a doctor. I thought that's what we signed up for. You know, I had, I have to say, John, I'm taking, I'll take the heat on this. I thought I saw something like Stanford University has a new climate change and health program. And look, you know, am I, what am I to think? I'm like, okay, is it possible that climate change will have impacts on human health? Of course. Sure. You know, but uh, you all need to know how to work up, uh, work up the elevated creatinine. You all need to know how to work up the solitary supraclavicular mass. And the patient lost 40 pounds. So what are we doing here? Why, why don't we focus on the patient is short of breath, the patient has a rash, the patient has a supraclavicular mass? Why don't we focus on medicine? Let's get that, let's get that worked out a little bit. Then we can go to doctors and climate change and doctors and, you know, saving the rainforest and doctors. I mean, you know, not to say that doesn't have a role, but let's just get the heart failure mastered, then go to the rainforest. That's all, all I'm saying, John, all I'm saying. I've had an evolution of how I think about this. You know, a few, maybe 10 years ago or whatever, I used to think that 
Uh, medicine was pretty easy. It was rote, algorithmic. You could learn it. You could do other things. And now it seems like as the older I get, and you know, I, I sit on our peer review committee at our hospital, and and I, you know, I practice in the hospital. I I really wonder whether I was wrong about that. And it's really, it's it's not so much knowing the differential diagnosis of a supercavicular mass or whatever. That's kind of easy. It's but it's also like getting to the bottom of a, a of a patient problem and understanding their home situation and understanding so many of the other intangibles. And really, how do you get that uh, in medical school and in residency? You know, you're you're learning from masters and mentors, and and that's the time to really focus on that. I mean, and I think all these other topics are 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 important, but their the core issue is is the care of people. Yeah, that's well put. You know, I was even you're right. Like understanding how to work up something that's easy. Then there's the next level of clinical medicine, which is somebody comes to you with some concern. I recently saw somebody with fatigue and they're being referred to me for a laboratory value. And in the course of the conversation, it became clear what we need to do about the laboratory value, that's algorithmic. But then I came back to, you started this off with, you're feeling fatigued. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, this laboratory value has nothing to do with that. So why are you feeling fatigued? Let's talk about that. What really might be the culprit? What might you be able to do? And now here I'm putting my internal medicine hat on again. Yeah, one of the things that came up in, in, in my lecture on Saturday, yesterday was, you know, we, we talked about some of these high tech things that we do in cardiology and and somebody asked a question about a, a patient with multimorbidity and, and older and, you know, what would you do? And I and I kind of I really think one of the main challenges of modern of young doctors is going to be not if we can do something, but should we do something? I mean, in cardiology, we have so much. I mean, oncology, I'm sure it's the same. But I mean, we have so many things, devices and drugs and, and LVADs and all this stuff. And it's just like, yes, they, they, they definitely help some people, but there are other people um, who it's not so it's not it's not so wise. And and that's really, I think, our, our job. And gosh, it seems like a good time to learn that in residency and fellowship. Absolutely. And uh, well, we're just preaching to the choir. I mean, yeah, to know when it works. And you know, you're talking about repeating some of those ICD trials in the era of modern drugs. That's a great point. That's probably some expired evidence there. And you can, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was another one of another one of my topics is just, you know, uh, also, you know, not only not only you know, ICDs prevented sudden cardiac death or, or prolongs life in patients with heart failure, but those patients were enrolled in you know, 20, 20 years ago before we had all these modern therapies. But also another one is, you know, beta blockers after myocardial infarction. You know, those trials were done even earlier than that in 1980s and 1990s before there was thrombolytics and PCI. And so, yeah, so trials definitely have a time limit. And and again, when you're a young doctor, you're learning how to put wires in people and you're learning what protocols to use in oncology. I mean, it, it seems like critical appraisal gets you know, kind of in the back seat. To be honest with you, I mean, if I were to articulate, what do I think their oncology training is like? It's like they come in, they get one year where they're just the hospital scut monkey. 
because they're mostly doing inpatient, not outpatient. Most of oncology is actually outpatient, not inpatient. They're mostly trying to be, you know, the social worker slash secretary for the team, but also they need to know all this oncology so they, you know, don't lose face. So it's a hard year for these fellows. I, I don't envy them. I have a lot of sympathy for them. I work with them a lot and uh, my hat's off to them. Then they finish the first year and so much of their time is what project are you going to work on? What project? It's not enough of the projects. <laughs> let's, let's get back to, let's do a few more clinics. Let's shadow the experts. Let's do a little bit more. Let's do some clinical stuff. These projects, they're not helping anybody. I mean, some of these projects are so niche and obscure. They bore me. They're not even plausible or practical. Uh, they're never going to yield anything. And I mean, why are we obsessed with, uh, why are we obsessed with, with these projects? I don't understand. Adam you is know, saying something. I, I wanted on. to, that's a good segue. I wanted yes. to ask you about that. You know, I'm sure these projects are to publish papers, right? Uh, and so, or, or posters know, uh, or posters to take up the, uh, the space and, in the, the cat, the, the, in the, in the overhead of, bin. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, one of the things that struck me, I, I, I wrote on my Substack was just about why there's so many bad medical studies. And yes. And, and what I, what I came to was that there's many, maybe there's too many of these projects and why are there projects? Well, they're projects because of the incentives, right? The, the 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 incentive is to publish and to advance, and but I think the incentives are all boogered up, if you ask me. Because I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't think it's nefarious on the part of people. I think it's just they're just doing what the incentives uh, uh, sort of lay out. There's definitely faculty at universities that like to write and publish. And then there's a lot of people who feel the pressure to write and publish. They don't like to do it. And I think you just got to take the pressure off them. Like, I have no idea why. If you don't like to do it and you're a great doctor and you're a good teacher, that's enough. But they have to do it. And so then you get some doctor who doesn't do a lot of this. And is, and if you don't do a lot of research, then you're actually not very good at conceptualizing the question and how to do it and, and you know, making it. But then they find a trainee. They saddle the trainee with this. And it's just this, you know, make work business. It's like... It's like the Works Progress Administration in the uh, Great Depression. I mean, or, or, or it's like a welfare program. Government gives tax money to us, like welfare, and then we do work that doesn't matter. And so we're just like a welfare program, except we're very smart people put on government welfare. By that, I mean NIH grants uh, which <laughs> that don't matter, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that why, – why is it, though? I mean, because in cardiology, what struck me is that I review studies every week and, and – I see so many of these just just studies that these non-random comparisons, we're going to look back and we're going to, you know, we have patients who got this treatment and patients who didn't get the treatment and the patients who got the treatment look better. But of course, they got the treatment because they're healthier. And, you know, one of the, and I wrote, this is crazy. And one of the feedbacks I got was, you know, from a really good academic who said that, you know, John, you know, some of the reason people do this is because they really want to find answers to help people. And so the tension is the tension is yeah they I'm sure they do but this isn't this isn't the methods to do it and then if we were honest about the conclusions we would say our study has so many limitations that it precludes making any conclusions and then 
So I, I don't know I what mean, the answer is. I, You're I an academic. I, you no, I guess I, I don't understand the, the argument because, like, you know, George Washington's doctors wanted to heal George Washington. They, like, their heart was in the right place. They wanted to heal George Washington, so they bled the shit out of him, and he's dead. So, you know, at some point, you know, your, your goals is not enough. you got to actually be doing something useful. So I know, yes, of course, do the, tra- do the people doing this research want to help? Of course. Do they want to answer questions? Yes. But the method doesn't do it, as you say. So, you know... I mean, and it's different than George Washington's day because they may not have known. But we do know that this retrospective comparisons of two different cohorts is not reliable. We've known that for decades. It's the universal truth. I mean, I knew that when I was coming up. Every generation's, you know, we know that. Why are we doing it? And so, well, what would I- you say? What would you say to this comment? I got another comment on the pa- on the post was <laughs> another comment from another academic was that. Before we spend gazillions on randomized controlled trials, maybe we should invest some money in observational studies to help guide our randomized controlled trials, and we might be able to be more efficient in the trials. I, yeah. I think I know your answer, but I'm interested. Well, I guess my answer is that the gold standard way to assess that claim would be you have um, uh, you you decide you're going to run a hundred studies. And then um, you ask me, without any knowledge, to pick which are the 20, if you had to pick these 100 studies, which will be the most 20 most informative things? And here we'll use something called value of information, the probability to yield a result that changes practice for lots of people versus like save the cost if it doesn't work, that sort of thing. And then you ask somebody to run the observational studies that this person wants, and then they pick their 20 of the most informative studies or whatever. And I guess the point is that do those observational studies actually help you focus your research questions? In many cases, we know the questions. Like you said, in in the era of the modern world, do you need to install the defibrillator or not? Rerun the randomized study. I mean, you can run a thousand observational studies. You're not getting any closer to the truth. Another way to formulate it is is to say, they say it's hypothesis generating. But we already have the hypothesis, okay? We already got the hypothesis, so we don't need to generate it. We can just answer it properly. Go on. Yeah, I, I think I would even go farther and say that for every for every group of observational studies that might inform a randomized controlled trial like that, that truly generates a hypothesis, you could also have re- observational study, studies that, re- that generate a crazy hypothesis that leads you down a road to spend a, a gazillion dollars that you didn't need to spend. And so I, I worry that it actually might increase uh, inefficiency rather than if in, uh, decrease in, uh, or increase inefficiency, you know, by make by giving us wrong signals. I mean, not to pick on this, but like masking, do you think we need a will a few more observational studies and masking settle the debate? No, <laughs> I mean, I what do we we had a thousand? What are we talking about? No, we just, it's a good example because <laughs> it's, it's example. hopelessly confounded, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. it's just there's there's many examples like that that are hopelessly confounded and and you, yeah, you just you just can't know. I mean, look at the look at the RCT. I mean, I don't know if we talked about it last week, but I mean, we have the best experts in the world who try to emulate RCTs and and they could do it more than fifty percent, but you don't know. Uh, you don't know which ones are correct. But back to your point about what this person is telling you. I mean, whenever I make this criticism to people, they're always coming up with a million reasons why the current system is okay. And my cynical side is like, well, you like it because you get free labor for your useless projects. That's, I mean, that's what you're. That's why you like it because you're in part of these useless projects and you get free labor. Um, and then they always say things like, you know, people just want to help. People want to do the right thing. I'm, just, I'm no. That's why we went into medicine. But I guess, I guess what I would say is that. Um, 
I just can't believe anyone's childhood dream was to do inconclusive work. You know, like, whose childhood dream was, like, I want to grow up and build a portfolio of inconclusive stuff. It's like, just do do less, but let, let's just make it conclusive. So, like, just do a lot less than what you're doing. You don't need to write that review article. You don't need to do these 25 chart review stuff. You can be a small part of a bigger randomized study. So your time commitment is very small, and that'll be your sole focus. We'll give you a lot of time and energy for that, but that'll be useful if we all do it together. Yeah, but the pushback against that is... You're asking people to go against the incentive structure. It's like asking doctors to do to do to, to not do procedures to, to go into something that doesn't pay well. And I I just think the problem is, I don't I don't think the solution. I guess I guess it gets into the constrained and unconstrained vision. I just don't think the solution is to have people go against incentives. It's the change is somehow to to work on changing incentive structure. I mean, just look at the you're, I mean, you're right, between, yeah. Look at the difference between utilization of procedures in um, in in countries that have a non fee for service versus fee for service. So the incentives are different, and there's different results, and it's the same human beings with the same good intentions. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So I guess the real places to make change would be if you're on the promotion and tenure committee of your university, if you're the chair of the department, issue a guidelines that says, look. We're going to deprioritize this low quality work and we're going to prioritize collaborations on high quality work. So even if you just put a few people on one multi-center RCT, that's really a good study. We'll give you a lot more credit than if you churn out a thousand retrospective chart review stuff. And the moment you start to put those incentives in the system, yeah, you might be better off. Yeah, that's a next, that's a good segue into what I wanted to ask you also about. Is, no, you're you're a good segueer. I got a segue. Okay, go. Where, where mean, are you going to go? Uh, maybe you have a better segue, but I wanted to ask you about the, the you know okay. So if you're on a tenure committee, um, and you have someone who is a public intellectual who doesn't have as many articles in 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 JAMA or New England Journal or whatever, but is influential in other ways, um, it gets into this sort of. I mean, what do you think about? you know, the new way of, of, of communication and, and um, I, I'm really focused on, I'm really focused on, you know, Substack and podcast. And I mean, you had a great piece yeah. uh, criticizing RFK Jr. on the all in podcast. I mean, they talked to this guy for two and a half hours, no edits. Um, and I just, you know, I know, I know medicine isn't going to Substack, but I mean, I do wonder about, you know, a, a, a transition in, in, in how we communicate important information. And we'll come back to the tenure part, but I think you're, you're talking about the long form. John, yeah. I, I, I got to say, um, and by the way, it sounds like you actually read my piece on RFK I Jr. I did. It was really good. Really good. Thank you. Um, I saw somebody said like, oh, you really defended him. I was like, the, really? I was like, no, you, I you, you said he was wrong about stuff. Yeah, I mean, of course. He's clearly, he's clearly wrong about ivermectin, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, if you believe evidence. Yeah, exactly. If you like, right. I mean, what was the purpose of my piece? It was to say where he was right. I gave him credit and where he was wrong. I said he was wrong. So it's not like I'm not in his side. I'm not against him. I'm just calling balls and strikes. That's all I sought to do. And it was illuminative because, okay, well, one, people should know what is all in. All in there are these four guys who are mostly from the technology space. I think probably each of their net worth is 500 to $2 billion. They're in that kind of ballpark. They're all very successful tech people. One is conservative, Sachs. The other ones are a little bit more liberal. They're across the spectrum. They're friends. They don't agree on everything. I think the reason people like the podcast 
is that they actually do debate things. They like don't agree always and they like let people talk and then they bring on RFK Jr. And the first thing I said was, somebody said I called RFK Jr. brave. I, if you read the piece, you'll see I call the hosts are brave. The hosts actually, I said they had courage. Why do the hosts have courage? Because even to bring on RFK Jr., I think, you know, it, it, they, they could have been stigmatized, but they had the courage to bring him on. And then they put him on there and for two hours, they covered uh, energy, schools, COVID-19, vaccines a little bit, but also nuclear power, all sorts of issues that a presidential candidate should, and then just ask his opinion. And they gave a little bit of pushback, but they mostly allowed him to say what he thinks and why. And that to me was great. Like I could listen to it and I could say, oh, he had these thoughts on lockdown. He had these thoughts on ivermectin. He had these thoughts on vaccines. Here's where I thought he was right. Like lockdown, he was right. Here's where I thought he was wrong. Ivermectin, et cetera, et cetera. I could just evaluate his claims. That's my piece. And I really think, John, you're so spot on that this is the future that, and let me contrast that with the past. There was an article today about Elizabeth Holmes in the New York Times, written by some reporter. This reporter goes to Elizabeth Holmes's beach house. She hangs out with her for two days. And it's like a flowery kind of Elizabeth Holmes. They said she was a bad woman. And yeah, sure, some people got some false blood test. No big deal. But she's a sweet person. She has two children. She's just a regular mom. I was surprised how natural it feels. And there's a line in there where her editor says, you know, Amy, you're being bamboozled or something. You're being conned by a con artist. And she's like, but I really like her. And she writes a puff piece. But here's what I think would be useful. Why do I read a 2,000-word article about Elizabeth Holmes through the lens of this, you know, reporter, why not just have Elizabeth Holmes do a two-hour camera interview, no cuts, no edits, exactly like RFK Jr. And so, like, if the question is, do we want our primary data interpreted for us, Elizabeth Holmes style, or do we just want the raw data and we can interpret it ourselves, RFK style, RFK style wins a thousand, all in defeats New York Times a thousand percent of the time. It's just better. Yeah, but it also could, you know, you it was a puff piece, but it also could have been a hit piece, right? So it's right. still through the it's still through the 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 lens of the of the writer and it's not it's it's like the difference between evaluating a study in New England where you see the final charts versus somebody who presents the actual a- abstractors. Oh, oh the, no, the, the actual, actual yeah. open data, right? Oh, so, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Go so, the other so way. Yeah. You 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 just that's the beauty of the that's the beauty of the long form is that I think it allows it allows uh, consumers of, of evidence or consumers of content, you know, more of a, you know, more of a neutral view. And you can you can make your own um, assessments. I was listening to the All In podcast with RFK Jr. on the way home uh, from the trip. And I was just like, man, he is dead wrong about that. And, but then there are other things like yeah. we're spending billions in the military industrial yeah. complex that could be used for education. And they also, you know, they, they, they kind of caught him in a, they kind of caught him in a little pickle with, you know, saying he's a full market capitalist yes. and all for capitalism, but then and school choice, public schools. Yeah. Against school choice. So yeah, this is, this is, it, this is good. And it also could be true for medicine, I think where, you know, people people can assess things for themselves. They don't need they don't need sort of the 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 guys of American College of Cardiology or ASCO or whatever to to sort of you know uh, summarize this evidence. And you can actually listen to listen to it for yourself. And these professional organizations are corrupt. I mean, I I don't know what to say. It they they are corrupt in the sense that they just take so much pharma money 
They do I don't not. Think they're corrupt. They do not want corrupt. to. Oh, now we're gonna get. All right, let's go. No, I don't they, want to push they, back. I but let me let me let me finish my thesis. Here's why they're corrupt. They take two. They take so much pharma money. They're addicted to pharma money. The center of the conference is nothing but pharma exhibits. They purposely put the posters behind the exhibits. They're of their of their two hundred million dollar ASCO annual revenue. So much is from pharma. They cannot actually be critical. They have to toe the line. So they can't have VP come and be the key and be the discussant for the keynote. If I was the discussant, I'd rip that keynote so many, I'd <laughs> fuck that keynote up, right? But they cannot have me do it. So they have to get somebody who, even if they're critical, they're more of a tried and true player. So that's why I say they're corrupt. Okay, now you tell me why they're okay. Well, no, I don't think they're okay. I think there's dualities of interest. And, okay. And like, like we wrote in the medical conservative piece, yes. the dualities of interest may not be may not be nefarious, but they have to be considered. So I agree that professional societies have these huge dualities of interest because they can't exist without pharma money. I don't. I bet you and I couldn't do these lectures in in faraway places if there wasn't pharma money. So. I mean, you know, the, the the funding from it may often come from that. So, I mean, I think we have to coexist. We have to coexist with industry because industry gives us many good things. Um, uh, they do when there's confluence of interest uh, between patient care and and profit, it works well. But there's definitely dualities of interest that have to be considered. I think corrupt goes too far. Okay. Well, I guess I would say to push back on your claim, I think. I would love to see the conference a little less opulent and a little less pharma addicted. And I guess it's an open, actually it's an open question. If someone's listening and if you're a philanthropist, email me, I have an idea. What about an, in, can, could, could you actually get an independent conference to run? Like a conference by doctors, for doctors, funded by doctors, maybe philanthropic support, but neutral philanthropic support, not from pharma, you know, a nonprofit, right. right. Could you get that to fly? I mean. Asco, it, like Asco is an opulent thing. Like the, the, it's like really nice. And like all the dinner parties is crazy. It's like, that's why people like it. But I feel like, you know, you could do it at a, at a, at a Hilton hotel. I mean, you could do it at a, at, 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 at a more modest place at a day's in. You could pull it off at a day's in. Maybe not. Maybe I don't not know. Maybe not a day's in. All right. Maybe, maybe, not. Not. <laughs> maybe at Embassy Suites. Maybe Embassy Suites. Yeah. Embassy Suites. I have no conflicts with with Embassy Suites, but no, I mean, uh, I've actually been to an ASCO conference. I talked once there. I couldn't believe it. It was more opulent than, well, it was equally opulent to cardiology. Cardiology, I don't know. Do you have a NASCAR in your expo? Because we had a NASCAR in our expo. God. Um, I remember <laughs> that that ASCO. I, we we met. We have a photo of us that we tweeted. If yeah, met. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. It was remarkable. I, I was shocked at how big it was. So corrupt may be going far, but I'm happy to go that far. But okay, but we'll, but we both agree on the core issue, which is that they don't. All right, do you think that they allow enough critical appraisal? No, me, absolutely yeah, okay. not. I so so to your point about the we we have we call them late breaking clinical trials. I don't know what they are in oncology, but we have yeah. late breaking clinical trials. And I remember in the old days there would be some you know kind of cranky old dude up there who would criticize a study, but now. <laughs> It's just somebody from the professional society who says, congratulations on your great study. And and they don't even ask a question. They just, you know, basically, basically just congratulate the authors. And there's no critical appraisal. This is where Substack podcasts come in, because if not for that, where, where would a person get any critical appraisal? You're not going to get it in the editorial of from from New England or JAMA, are you? 
No, you're not. So that's what I'm saying. So that, I guess I would say that like, why is Plenary Session the most popular oncology podcast globally? And like, we have more listeners. We have four X the listener of number two. Why? Because we're the only ones who actually criticize some of these trials. And there's a crying like desire for the criticism because everyone is, can read it and see it's got issues. Um, but back to the- yeah. go, uh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say about the critical appraisal. Um, I would even say the conference is complicit in a broader problem, which is how is the information delivered? In a perfect world, you run the trial and then you drop the preprint and I can read all the tables and then we and we all read and then we talk about it. But in the current system, what you do is you run your trial, you put out your press release. Every, every conflicted doctor on Twitter says, amazing, a BMS press release. There's a win from nivolumab in you know, taking it with breakfast tea every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> right? Okay, they tweet that. Then a few months later, there's a poster. Oh my God, congratulations to superstar, hashtag uh, RCC win, cure, 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 hashtag cure. Um, and then they talk about the abstract, but we still don't have all the data. Then the paper comes out. And then in the supplement, buried, I find that, you know, you know, all these problems, the control arm isn't right, the post protocol is wrong, the statistical plan was changed, abandoned, you know, all this problem. Okay, by the time I find the problem and I do my video, they've planted the seed, they've planted the whole narrative, and ASCO allowed them to do that. Like the whole system is so that they can plant the narrative. Yeah, I, what is this? I think Kahneman and Tversky, do they call it yes. anchoring bias or something? Yeah. Where, they, where where they, yeah. they, they three months before, two months before the conference, top line results are positive. So they've already anchored everybody. And then there's a press release at the conference. And then, yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. But again, I would go back to that's why... That's why that's why we, we we have this long form ability to 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 criticize these things and and you, you know plenary session is highly successful. It's a podcast. It's not even it's not on PubMed. It's not it's not academic, right? But when I get introduced at these at these lectures, the 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 the, the big thing is I'm the author of a podcast. I mean, that's it's kind of crazy, but it's also I think I think a positive. It's a positive, yeah. And to your point, Substack is less exploitative to the authors because authors get more from Substack than they do the journals. Podcasts are less exploitative. Although, to be fair, I, I don't make any money from the podcast. I've never figured it out how to. Um, YouTube is less exploitative. All these things that people say are exploited, they're less exploitative than the publishing model where I didn't get, I haven't gotten shit for 450 academic papers I've published. Um, yeah, let me ask you about that. What do you say to the critics who say, Ah, uh, you're making money from you're making money from YouTube and Substack. What what's what's I I I I have my opinion, but I, I wonder what you would how you would answer that. I guess like I'm also making money from seeing patients too. <laughs> so are you? You know? Okay. So I guess yeah. is the I mean I think when they say that criticism, what they mean to say is um, your point of view is influenced by your audience because you're making money from them. Ergo, you cater to your audience. Um, I would say that it's different than other situations. If I was paid by Pfizer, we all know what they want me to say. More vax daily, more, um, you know, palbocyclib all the time. You know, they, we know what Pfizer wants me to say. But what does my audience want me to say? And am I captured by my audience? I think it's a good question. And if you'll note, I would say that I don't think so. Why? Because I'm happy to piss off the people in my audience who believe in masks and I'm happy to piss off the ones who believe in ivermectin because they're both actually, even though they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, they both suffer from the same cognitive delusion, which is they prioritize low quality evidence over randomized trials. And right. my point of view has been the same. This is the other thing I tell 
I mean, I would argue, I have had the same point of view since I was 27 years old. I'm a 40-year-old man. And if anyone doubts that, you can read all these 450 papers and the two books. You will see this guy, whether you like me or don't like me, I've had the same goddamn point of view since I was 25, 26, 27. That's when I formulated my view on randomized, on evidence, ending medical reversal. I mean, I'm the, I have the same view. Do, do I want randomized studies? Yes, I've always said that my whole career. And so everything I talk about is an extrapolation of my worldview. And if anyone disagrees, they're, they, just can't, they're not, they don't read my work. They actually don't know what I think, I think. Yeah, but I would even, I would even make it simpler than that. I would yeah. just say that when you're on a Substack or when you're on a YouTube, it's, it's, it's like buying shoes. It's, it's transparent. And people, yeah. if you don't like the shoes and you think they're too expensive, then you don't trade your money for the shoes. And so I just think it's, 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 it's more transparent and more pure because the subscription model just seems to me less uh, influenced by conflicts like than, than, uh, than, than traditional you know, traditional academics. Uh, so I, 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 I don't have, I don't have a problem with it. Look at, look at why Joe Rogan is so successful. Right. Yeah. Joe Rogan isn't successful because he caters to conservatives or caters to liberals. He has everybody Mixed. on and where, where is he? He's, he's, he's in the center and he's willing to listen. He's willing to be a regular person. He, he's basically willing to let people review the open data, the, the transparent data. And I, I, I really I, I I'm just a big fan of of letting people hear opinions and, and judging on the merits. I mean, look at me, you and Adam. We have something in common. What's our skill set to different degrees? I think you're the best at this. No, don't tell Adam. <laughs> I think you're you're the best at the crisp writing. Short, clear, get to the point. Very, you know, I really love your writing style. To me, when I grew up, my favorite writer was Hemingway, and you're the Hemingway of medicine, so that's why I love oh, you. Oh, that's too much. Adam, wh where do I think he's the best at? I think verbal lecture. Adam is probably one of the most gifted lecturers I know. He comes across, it's both, you know, the folksy feel of a doctor, but also the rigor of the scientist. You know, I think I think he's super good in that domain. Um, I, I was just telling, I texted you guys this morning. I listened to his um, his essay that he re read on the Sensible Medicine podcast. It was it was so good. It was so good. I was like, this should yeah. be like an audiobook. This is amazing. Um, okay, he's great at that. And what do I think I'm good at? You know, I, I can write more than, I think I'm the fastest writer of anyone I know. Like I can put out more content in more domains than anybody. And You're the I, Hitchens. I'm, yeah, right. And then I can keep doing it. You know, I can, I, I'm the content, I can come up with a lot of content. And I think I'm okay at being clear to make, make my points. If we took our skill set and we really sat down like a conniving person and said, how can I get the most money from this set of skills, communicating medicine clearly, there's only one answer which is align yourself with pharma on all issues. We would be 10X successful. We'd be 20X successful. I'd be the CEO of a company probably by now, and you would be you know, the head of communications for Novartis. I mean, you'd be the head, right? You'd be a vice president. So, okay. So the, I think the critics have to understand the reason we take our skills and choose these issues to talk about is that we are true believers of these issues. I think that's the most parsimonious explanation. Let's talk about I, tenure, tenure. Okay, I don't know much about it because I'm out of the I'm I'm outside the uh, outside the moat. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if it's I mean promotion tenure. Everyone is so obsessed with this 
I don't know what to say. Here's here are my few thoughts. One, when you go into academics as a doctor, you're going to make less than you make in private practice. No doubt about that. And the gap between, like, you can all look this all up, so I'll just give you some raw numbers of the University of California system. I think, like, our assistant professors in oncology make, like, 200 to 250. And our full professors in oncology, the ones with, like, this guy is, like, double endowed professor, it's, like, 400 to 450. So everyone is in this range, 200, 250 to 400. This is the whole range, 200 to 450. Okay, what does a private practice oncologist make? I think Medscape survey says starting is, like, 360, but that's an under that's an underestimate because it doesn't consider infusion revenue, and we're not and we're talking about somebody just fresh out of fellowship, not somebody who's like a 50, 60 year old man who's you know. So I, I guess I would say that in academics, um, you're already paid lower than what you make elsewhere, and the and the, the difference is modest. Now we talk about promotion. Everyone is so obsessed about promotion. I'm like, why, why, why do you care? Most of that difference from 250 to 450 is just accrued by just being older. Like how many years you've worked here is a big predictor of salary. Your actual academic rank is usually a very modest difference in salary, 20, 30K maybe at best. I was promoted once and you know, they're like, if you get promoted, don't get promoted. You get the same pay. I was like, oh great, thanks. Thanks for the title, right? So that's one. So like what, it's kind of meaningless. And then let's talk about tenure. Tenure. They can still fire you. Who are we kidding? There's no tenure that they can't fire you. They can, every, if you don't like someone at work, you can make their life miserable and get them out. 100% of the people who they don't want, they can push out. Now, is it worth it to them to push you out? Ironically, more powerful than tenure is just knowing you'll get a public outcry. That's probably the most powerful thing you have. So you put these facts together. I feel like what my advice to people is, you shouldn't give a shit. Like, just don't, it doesn't matter if you're promoted. You've already taken a huge pay cut by working here, busting your hump and jumping through the hoops they want you to jump through for this modest difference. Forget it. And you don't need tenure because they can fire you with it or fire you without it. So what you should do is if you're taking this pay cut, you need to work on stuff that you think is so groundbreaking, you just couldn't do it anywhere else. You need to take that time put it back in your pocket, reclaim the time, and do what you want to do. And if that's making YouTube, that's fine. If that's potty, that's fine. If that's writing academic articles that are going to piss everyone off, that's fine too. But if you are doing this to jump through the hoops, then you are a fool. And so that, so that's my thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the corollary to private practice is you, you do make more money, but you, you still, I think in this day and age, especially when you're employed by an employer, I think you're, you're no matter how good you are, you're, you're vulnerable. And, uh, you may be, you may be less vulnerable than a tenured professor, but you're, you're still vulnerable. Uh, I, so I, I, yeah, I think, I think that there's a tension, right? Vinay though, uh, and this comes up with young people. Like when I talk to young people, I think they're hesitant to be too critical and be too, um, uh, uh, transparent about views because that might affect their career, not just in academics, but wh where they get to go. And this is a real problem, I think. Yeah, it's a problem. And But back to your point about private practice, somebody told me early in my career that when you have fuck you money, you're really free. You're more free than tenure. And what that, so I, I'm going to put it to you. So what they defined as F you money is defined as $5 million in the bank. When you have $5 million in the bank, then you just can do whatever the fuck you want. Thoughts? Totally disagree. And totally why is that? Disagree. Yeah. Why do you disagree? Because, because what, what, what doctors, I mean, 
I know this might sound Pollyannish, but you can have enough money to retire, but if they take away the thing that gives you meaning, if they, yeah, if they take away your peg of yeah. self-esteem, yeah. it's huge. Right, and so right. you, yeah, you can, I mean, if you have Nassim Taleb money, then of course, you know, it's, it's maybe not as big an issue, but if you have enough for retirement, you, and you're, and you're having a ton of meaning from your job, then it's very difficult to give that up. So I don't, I, I, and, I and you and you shouldn't have to give it up for some bullshit. You shouldn't have to. Yeah, and 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 um, and 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 it really, it really is a conflict of interest. I think that people underappreciate of 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 being in a, in a big system. And um, so, anyways, I I just don't think the money. I don't think the money thing is is. Uh, That's a, a good point. Good argument. And then I guess it fits to. Um... Um, because they can always like, as you say, like being a doctor is your identity. And so they can take that away from you. So that's messed up. Yeah, it's, it's always good. I always, you know, I always feel like I think about this a lot. I always think that people should have many pegs that they hang their self-esteem upon right. and it shouldn't just be, it shouldn't just be one peg. But the truth of the matter is that it is a big peg. Um, you know, what you do professionally and taking care of people, at least it is, at least it is for me. me I, too. I, yeah. I love it. Yeah, a lot. that's me too. I know. So that's a that's a that's a problem. What about the all in people? The all in people, their all net worth is like a billion dollars, but they're also not doctors. I mean, they don't practice. Yeah, that's a that may be a different level, and also, um, yeah, I, I don't know that that's. It's like a study that doesn't apply to the patient in front of you. Yeah. I don't know if that, all right, all right. That, fair enough. I don't know fair if enough. they have external validity to our point. Fair enough. Good point. Okay, let's talk about the kids these days. You alluded to the kids these days. I don't know, John, do you think, part of me thinks that COVID, the kids, they're all related to one thing, which is, you know, my grandparents' generation is like the World War II generation. Uh, my dad is a boomer, born in 46, you know? Um, and then there's the Vietnam generation. Um, you got a generation of doctors who are coming up now who have never faced real tragedy in the sense that your your high school classmate is killed in war or you know you or real struggle your your family growing up didn't have enough food for the third child to get enough i mean literally not enough food for people to eat so they have struggles and i know they love to talk about the struggles but not like not like these other generations and so i think it fits with risk taking so they're so risk averse i think i've never i've never seen so many people Oh, I'm scared to work on this. They're going to cancel me that. I'm like, who cares? I'm like, what are you so scared about? First of all, they're not going to cancel you. No one's going to read it. I mean, that's real. You know, it's only the repeat offenders they go after a cancellation for. And also like, you know, part of what gives the mob strength is that you're scared right now. And guess what? You're not going to be destitute and, and impoverished and, you know, and die in war. And so, you know, you're, you're doing pretty good. Um, thoughts? I don't know, Vinay. I mean, I'm <laughs> not with young. You're with young people. I'm not. Too. I'm not with young people. I'm an old person too, John. No, but I mean, you're you're in an academic center, and you have medical students and stuff. I, I, I it's hard for me as an old dude to to sort of translate what we went through. Um, and I, I think I have different opinions than you do about work hours and scut work. I 
I actually think there was a lot of value in putting in IVs and and uh, wheeling veterans to their you know CT scan and you know one time I gave a veteran my shoes so that he could go to University Hospital. I almost got I got in big trouble for that because they wouldn't do his transesophageal echo because he didn't have shoes. So I, I I I see value in that, but I don't know the struggles of young people. I don't our struggles we can't really translate, and I I I am sensitive to their to their to their inability to, to speak out. And I'm, you know, I, I think that's why your podcast and my podcast, and, and I think that's why this kind of content has traction because it's one place where they can, where they can get that kind of view. And I, I don't know, I wouldn't much. Yeah. I would want them to be brave and to be bold and all of that stuff. But on the other hand, there's the pragmatism of, of, of doing what you want to do. And there's trade-offs. I feel like you you're playing two sides of the coin because uh, um, uh, I like I like what you said about the veteran and I've given some pe- some patients money you know when they need it because it's actually easier than dealing with the bureaucracy and uh, in terms of work hours that maybe I actually think that there should be some more rules etc to cut that down and decrease scut um, but back to the kids uh, um, I guess I would say maybe this is just my view, which is that I didn't hold back that much when I was a first-year faculty member. I mean, I was pissing people off from assistant professor. And you know all those articles caused so many, you know, the proportion of people eligible for genome drugs. That paper we wrote on cancer screening does not save lives, BMJ. Everyone's head exploded when they read that. Some of the things that people's head exploded about, like we've forgotten how I published a paper on the cost of R&D in JMIM explosion even the reversal stuff you remember ashish Jha was tweeting medical reversal this is makes doctors look bad and i'm like well but it's true that we have reversal so Jha said that i think in 2012 um so i feel like i don't know maybe it's just my personality which is like you know you can't you can't just worry about pleasing everybody until you die it's a sad life and i do think i'm biased because you say i work with young people i do but anybody who comes works with me they're self-selected. It's like the most courageous. Dave Valelli, you know, who writes the thing for us. That's a what a courageous young man. Ben uh, Ben Knudsen, who writes that brilliant stuff for us. Super courageous. Um, you know, everybody I work with, they're brave in their own way. And so the people who are really risk averse, they don't even come to me. Yeah, it's true. But I would also, I I agree with you. I think there needs to be more of you. But I would just, you know, from my perspective, is I didn't get bold and transparent until I was. 10 or 12 years into practice and I had sort of a, I sort of had a cushion and now you have a cushion. You had the fuck you money. (laughs) No, not not, not have you money, but just like, just like, like, I think you've talked about a shield before, you know, Mm -hmm. you get a shield after you've done this for a while. And I agree, but I would also, if you draw a normal curve, I mean, you're a couple standard deviations uh, away. And, and um, so I, I guess I agree with you that I would want more bold, transparent, more bold and, and, and you know, people with candor. But I also understand the pragmatism of, 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 of stuff. I don't know. You, you paved a very unusual path because uh, really there aren't that many academics, successful academics who've done what you've done. Don't I wish worry. there were more, but there isn't. Hey, the story's not over yet. You don't know how it ends, John. So. <laughs> 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 you don't know, you you want to withhold judgment until you see the ending of this movie. Okay, let's talk about right. the last thing. The last thing that you sent me and I wonder if you'll explain it to me. Polygenic risk score. Okay, I'm not a cardiologist. Um but here's my impression and you tell me if I'm wrong. 
You all have a handful of pills you like to give healthy people. Those include aspirin. Now that's fallen out of favor. Um, statins, blood pressure pills. This is what you guys love, these cardiologists. You love to give a, find a healthy person, give them some um, statin, some LDL-lowering medicine, some, some Repatha, Evolocumab, or something like that. You love to do this kind of disease-modifying stuff. A few of you like to do diet and exercise, just a, a few. <laughs> and a few are into sort of wackadoodle diets like vegan this or, I don't know, plant, you know, wackadoodle things are unproven. That's a few of you. But most of you just like to give the pills. You don't know who to give the pills to. And so you have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who to give the pill to. And so you look at their LDL and their lipoprotein little a and their CT scan of their heart. And then you look at their this and that. And I don't know, every year you make up some new bullshit to look at. Now the new bullshit is your polygenic risk score. And you find somebody at slightly higher risk than the other person. And then it's all because, and all of this is just to say that person B, you should take the statin. Person A, you shouldn't. Um, and and you should take the statin, of course, not just for a few years, but for like decades and decades and decades. And I guess you sent me this paper along this line, and I guess I'm curious, which is, um, you know, to me, like the gold standard studies to prove that this is the best are like super hard to do, and I don't see any of those ongoing. And it's all based on the belief that the higher the baseline risk, the more the absolute risk reduction. But I would think that for some of the new um, things you're looking at, those sorts of relationships might not be as as transferable from the older work. And I guess I would say that ultimately the, the biggest barrier to somebody taking the statin in my mind is they're like people who like to take pills and people who don't. And all this kind of mumbo jumbo doesn't get at that. So I guess, I don't know. How do you think about this whole field of preventive cardiology? You sent me this well, paper. Like, yeah. the, just specifically, the, the polygenic risk score really took me into, it really, it really like, I was just, I was just completely in awe of it, right? Because you can take someone's DNA and you can mix it up and you can find this amalgam of genes that will uh, uh, make them at higher risk. And if you know that they're at higher risk, then you can kind of focus therapy on that. And then just for the listeners, it's just more of a way to, to I guess, do precision medicine. It's the same thing with coronary artery calcium, right? So we can do these scans for like $200 and we can see if you have coronary calcium and if you do, then instead of a seven-year risk of a heart attack, it's maybe a nine, a 7% risk, it's a 9% risk, and so it's just a way of doing that. But what's interesting about polygenic risk scores is that these new papers that have come up have shown that despite this amazing technology and this way to mix in all of these genes, it's really not much better than just looking at LDL, blood pressure, age, whether you have diabetes and whether you smoke. So you have these, you have these sort of these simple scores that are just as good as these complex scores. And we, we have it in AFib, right? We have this crazy thing, the Chad's VAS score, which is like this five or seven point integer scale, which you would think that you could mix in all of these. You could use AI to mix in the biomarkers and left atrial size, and you could do better, but it's these simple scores. And I guess it gets to the I, the reason why I'm drawn to it is it gets to the philosophy of how much we can control future outcomes. And I, and I think it's sort of the minimizer maximizer. And, you know, I'm married to a palliative care and hospice doctor. And so I, I look at trying to prevent one disease or trying to maximize statin therapy as sort of crazy because there's like 15,000 things that can happen to you. I mean, you could get your colonoscopy and get a, a polyp clipped and then 
come up with, you know, head and neck cancer or dementia or get hit off your bike or something. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I'm interested in, in this and just, you know, we're going to get more AI. We're going to get more digital health. And I really wonder how are these going to measure up to just uh, simple, simple bedside scores of things that we can easily measure. What would happen if I took a 20,000, 30 to 35 year olds, maybe no bigger than that, 500,000, 30 to 35 year olds. I randomize you in, or we could say 40 to 45 if people don't want to go so young, but I know some you cardiologists, you like to, well, the moment they, they get their driver's license, you like to put them on the statin. <laughs> I know how you, okay. So you get all these people, young people, whatever, you pick the age and your forearm randomized study. Nobody takes a statin. Every, everybody takes a statin. Okay, you uh, do all this. You can do any blood test you want, PRS and whatever you want, PRS, QRS, whatever RS you want. You can do all the RSs. You decide who takes it, who doesn't take it. And then the fourth arm is like you say, simple, just a simple like four four algorithm to decide who takes a statin. And you follow them for 15 years. I'm curious, like, do the people who do all this PRS work, do they think they're going to be the winner of such a study? I would actually guess that... The statin, everyone take a statin arm might even be the winner. I don't know. I mean, that might even be the winner. Yeah, I, but, but I, would, I would go back to your first comment. If you have to randomize 500,000 yeah, people, right. we should spend money on different things. And, you, and um, so, so I, I and, and just for the listeners, if you have to randomize that many people, it's because there's such small differences. So I don't know. I, I, uh, and this is another thing that, comes up in my talks to young cardiologists is, you know, the challenge now is that we've made so many big gains that we're on this flat part of the curve where since humans are are not immortal, that uh, it's really hard to, it's really hard to make big changes. And I'm not sure that risk prediction is, is, is that fruitful. So let me, let me give you a different randomized study. Okay. Tell me how you feel. 500 person randomized trial, 250 each. One arm, you get the, the creme de la creme lipid reduction, a la Harvard, lipoprotein, little a, every little thing you can do. That's arm A. Arm B, you get the same people and you do a series of 10 cooking classes where you teach them how to cook healthy food. I'm not joking because a lot of people don't know how to cook uh, you know, dried chickpeas and things like that that are really tasty if you cook them right. Okay, And then you follow them one year, two years, 250 each arm. You look at all the metabolites that you hard cardiologists love, LDL, whatever. You look at that, but you also look at quality of life, weight, satisfaction. I'm curious. What do you think? Yeah, so the, 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 the problem with doing that study, I like that study, but the problem with doing that study is, is external validity, right? So you would, you would do that study and you would show that, you would show that cooking classes was not inferior to you know, uh, the, the world's greatest hospitals uh, uh, program. And then you would say, okay, how does that apply to, how does that apply to my, you know, patient who has no money and works, you know, lives in the inner city. And it's just, I think that's the problem with it is just, is how you would apply it to people who are not randomizable in a study like that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe you, you'd want to do a registry based, do it out of a Kaiser so you get everyday people but you're right. How do you get it for the, the most vulnerable yeah, people? Yeah, I don't, you know, people think I'm nihilistic, but um, I, I I really think that, look, statins are, we, we know what they do. They reduce events. It's pretty modest. And uh, maximizers will probably want to take it. Minimizers probably won't. And 
I just think the drugs ought to be over the counter and just put a little risk calculator in the aisle and let people decide whether they want to take a pill every day. And we don't even, doctors don't even need to be involved. We can... I, I don't disagree with that. That's interesting. Okay, let me ask you this. I'm, I'm 40 years old. Uh, you want to know my height and weight? Six feet, 160 pounds. Okay. Yeah. And so, okay. So uh, no medical problems that I know of. I, I, I actually don't know what my LDL is, John. So... Um, because I don't check numbers, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't know the LDL, but I I'm, I'm imagine it's normal-ish. Um, so I guess my question is, I come into your clinic, you're a heart doctor, and I say, John, I want to live forever. And let's say also, I'm a billionaire. I can do anything, John. So what are you going to tell me to do? What's your advice to me? Yeah, so what I do, that's a good question. What I do with people, I would, would want to know your LDL so we could do the risk calculator. And we would put your numbers in the risk calculator. You might say, well, I could do cornea calcium. That might be a bit a little better. And maybe it's a little better. Or I want to do this or I want to do that. But it's, I would, we would start with your baseline risk. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I want you to, the thing that I want to push back a little bit and that's changed with my view of statins is that, is that, you know, Daryl Francis and those guys have published a study that shows that the longer you're on, primary prevention therapy, the longer you're exposed to the LDL, the, you may get more benefit. And so then I would have this conversation where we calculate your risk without statins, we calculate your risk with statins, and we'd say, here's your risk reduction. If you like that risk reduction, take the pill, but please know that, please know that there, there, you know, maybe benefit, you know, those Kaplan-Meier curves get long, get wider as time goes on. Now, we don't know about side effects, right, over a long term, because they're only five-year studies, but and I would, I would not be attached to what the patients felt like if they, I would just give them the information. I'd be their advisor and I would just say, whatever you want to do, it's up to you. But I would never say, take a statin because your cholesterol is high. I would just put it in that risk calculator as overall risk. So I just played with the risk calculator and uh, I don't know the, all, all the numbers because to be honest, I don't test numbers that I want to know the answer to. But under most modest assumptions, I'm getting about 1% risk. Yeah, well... Okay, so 25% of 1% is pretty low, but when you get to be my age, just by virtue of age, you'll get you'll get to a higher number. But and again, I'm a minimizer. I I mean I don't think any I think I don't think I mean I, I just yeah don't ignore symptoms, but I don't think it can really. But John, the future. what what's your advice for me outside of the statin question? I'm 40, and I you know you know my height and weight. So what should I do? How, how, what's stay your advice? Stay away from doctors. You should stay away from doctors. Hundred percent exercise. What do you, what would you advise me there? And eating normal exercise. Normal. Do whatever you want. I no. wouldn't recommend doing two Ironmans a year. That's foolish. But normal exercise is totally yeah. I do about two hours a day. That's okay. a lot. Okay. You're a climber at 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 that height and weight. You're 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 a climber. Probably not a sprinter. Okay, that's true. And uh, okay, then what do you advise me for eating? Eat. Don't eat, don't eat Cheetos. Don't, you know, don't, don't eat, you know, potato chips, eat normal food. And this is the main, again, I don't want to sound like I'm stupid, but I don't know the right diet, right? Is it Mediterranean? Is it vegan? Is it, is it, you know, keto? Who knows? I mean, on the margin, it's all margin. And what do you advise me for alcohol? Uh, for alcohol, I'm, uh, I'm half Italian. So I would never prohibit, uh, I would never prohibit a good Chianti or Valpicello. So, you know, to be honest, I like your answers and actually it's pretty, I'm pretty much hundred percent with you. That's what I've, having looked at the literature on all these topics, that's my view. Yeah. You we do have exercise. Randomized, we have, we have randomized trials in cardiology 
that are that are very clear. We have observational data. We actually have plot. We actually have bioplausibility studies that show that alcohol is clear pro is a clear pro AF thing. It 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 changes atrial electrophysiology. Uh, abstinence decreases AFib hundred percent. But then my Italian colleagues will hug me and they'll say, Mandrola, you cannot take alcohol. You cannot take wine away from Italians. And and so okay, I appreciate that. It's interesting. But you're just looking at AFib. What about all the other dimensions of living? Like, for instance, yeah, uh, uh, joy. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm about to have a glass of red wine. So on that positive <laughs> note, I think we covered a lot, John. I think we covered. Well, here's a, here's yeah. a nice, one from, nice one from Spain. Cheers. Cheers. Well, it's a little, I'm going to go get that glass soon. Okay. So we covered uh, travel. We advised him against it. Exploitation. Try to get more <laughs> of your earnings. We covered, um, you know, the beauty of all long form podcasts like that all in podcast is really good. I actually, you know, you actually, you, you said something really profound to me, which is that even when you have the money, you're, they can still, they still have, they still have clinical practice. And so I really, it really, it really hit me. I think that, I think you're really right. So you're right. You're never really free. Uh, none of us are. Tenure doesn't make you free and, and money doesn't make you free if you do something you love, which we do do. So I think that's a great point. And uh, your health advice for me, 40 year old guy, I think I'm going to take it, John. You have me sold. <laughs> But, all right. Great talking right. with you. Great to see you. Until next time.